This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Municipal Affairs Minister Steve Clark on Wednesday, yesterday, introduced strong mayor legislation allowing mayors of Toronto and Ottawa to force the passage of bylaws that align with provincial priorities with just a minority of votes. Uh, That would be just over one third of council members voting in favor. And this was a change that Mayor John Tory asked for. And the legislation also changes how some regions are governed, including giving the province the power to appoint the regional chairs of Niagara, Peel, and York regions. And in addition, facilitators uh, will review the regional governments in Durham, Halton, Niagara, Peel, Waterloo, and York, uh, which is leaving some people wondering if this is going to be the end of regional government. And this comes after Bill 23, the so-called More Homes Built Faster Act. And three former Toronto mayors, including our panel member, David Crombie, wrote an editorial calling this a significant attack on municipal powers and finances. And now, it's time to tune into the town. And now I'd like to welcome Lauren O'Neill, Senior News Editor of Blog TO, David Crombie, former Mayor of Toronto, and Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village. Hi, everyone. Hello. Hi, Libby. Hi, Lib. Uh, let us begin with David. So, first you saw the more homes built, whatever, uh, and then now we have the the new... Uh, governance act uh, uh what do you think well i guess there's a couple of points that really people should appreciate i i, I think that it's probably the most uh, uh destructive piece of legislation to come in some time dealing with local government ontario um first of all let me, let me make a comment if i could about the process when bill 23 came down uh, and even recently with the minority vote on council to pass things came as well with well, an assumption this was done by the province on its own, and that somehow it's interesting to see what would happen when Mayor Tory uh, would respond to it. He didn't respond to it. We find out now the reason he didn't is he was in on it. He was actually part of it. Uh, in fact, for, from his point of view, he, he thinks it's a good idea. What's interesting to note is we just went through an election. No one said anything. No one said a note. This is a major alteration in local government and its relationship with the province, and not a not a word, not a syllable from the mayor who who should have been out there defending our interests. So, secondly, let me say that the many changes that came that are in Bill Twenty Three, having to do with uh, civic processes and public processes, having to do with the powers of the uh, conservation authorities, regional governments, all of those things, and um, are, are, you can best get characterize them by understanding that we now have a bill that says, uh, uh, coming to government, uh, a bill that says you can do all of this with the things that we want you to do if they're within the provincial interest, you can do it with a, with a third of your council. I mean, that's appalling. So it actually leads some people to see and characterize what's happened and is happening to us right now. A professor from the University of Toronto said it's essentially a takeover of municipalities, Toronto in particular here, uh, take over the municipalities um, uh, in, in, the, in the planning and development of, of municipalities, and that the mayor has simply become now the chief provincial enforcement officer. And I agree with that. Okay, well, uh, let's move on to Karen, of course, a former city councillor. Uh, what would you add, agree, disagree with that? Yeah, I agree with David, actually. And, and, and I think it's actually a dangerous position for Tory to take, to be candid, um, because, you know, there is going to be a, a significant disenfranchisement from people of the city around how their neighborhoods get built. 
And if Tory declares something of provincial interest and only needs a third of counsel, he basically tells the community, your opinions on this development don't matter. And the developer then knows that the community's opinions don't matter. And even though there's a lot of balance about NIMBY and the reality is a lot of really good decisions get made when the community is involved in the process. And now the community is effectively being shut out because they don't matter. They really don't. And, you know, um, just on the practical side, if Tory can't convince 13 of his colleagues to support something, right? Like, that's an issue. Well, and, and, and he has always in the he's past. Always had a majority. But, okay, so, so here's the thing, and I want to throw this to Lauren, because possibly you have a different perspective on it. Uh, and I've said this before. These days, it seems the worst thing that you can be called is a NIMBY. And uh, the mayor, in justifying his participation in this, said he did this to get rid of NIMBYism. Uh, I've talked about heritage preservation. And I've had, you know, esteemed professors say, oh, that is just an excuse for people to be NIMBYs and not allow development. And I've also, as I've said, full disclosure, I, I rejoined my local ratepayers group. And it's the same uh, attitude to that. You want to get involved in your community and it's because you're a NIMBY. And uh, we need to override democracy, I guess, to stop the attack of the NIMBYs. I suppose so. No, I don't suppose so. That I completely disagree with that because it's not just taking power away from community groups to appeal developments at the Ontario Land Tribunal. It's taking power away from conservational group, conservationist groups. Like, how is that NIMBYism if you don't want a new development to pave over um, an area of ecological significance? And, and with the heritage buildings, too, as I think anyone who appreciates architecture in this city and the history and culture of this city knows, there's a lot more going on behind preserving our past and our beautiful structures from other times than just like keeping apartments out of the area. Like it's so much more important than that. And and so I think the argument that this is just to prevent NIMBYism is is a very false one. And I also don't really think that Tory even seems to have as much of a say in this as as Ford does. It's like some people are just calling this a power grab by the provincial government, by Ford specifically. And I mean, that's what it looks like from an outsider. I obviously don't have the experience um, of the other two panelists who are very smart people who know politics, but I, I just, from the outside, I mean, it does look like an attack on democracy. Well, yeah, and it's been called that by some city councillors. I mean, in in terms of Tory, he said, well, he will continue his collaborative blah, blah, yes, but uh, I guess that he realizes that when it comes to community development, City councillors, most of them, not all of them, certainly not mine, um, will, uh, you know, side with the community, with what the community wants to have there. Is that an explanation, you think, David Crombie? The, the way in which the system operates over these many years is that councillors um, uh, have to pay attention and should pay attention uh, to the people who elect them. That's why that's what part of the democracy is all about. They also, at the same time, uh, and the mayor in particular, because he does not have, he has a city as a general constituency, um, it's the mayor who has to pay attention to things beyond the neighborhood, and between that and that dialogue yields a, a good public policy, where you take a look at what's a general interest, what's a particular interest, and find the golden spot uh, that, that, that allows everybody to live with it. Okay. Uh, so, uh, I mean, this thing is, is being pretty well rammed through. They have a majority. Uh, is there any kind of uh, recourse, Karen? No, unfortunately, there, there's, as I see it, there's not. And, and, I, and as I say, I think that it's, you know, it's one thing to be able to ram things through. Okay, great. You know, either premier, you're going to ram it through because you have a majority. Tory negotiated something that's going to work to hit advantage in the short term. But in the long term, this is going to have repercussions that ripple through and impact, well, impact the government when they go for re-election. There's no question about it because this whole lunacy that you can just put four homes on any lot that's over 70 feet is, is ridiculous, quite frankly. But I have been talking to developer friends that are building prefab housing so that you can knock down a house on a 70-foot lot and then roll in the prefab. 
<laughs> you know what? When that process starts happening in Etobicoke, Doug Ford's going to get an earful. Oh, and, yeah, from from you know, Doug's neighbors. From I Doug's mean, neighbors. Yeah, they all, it's not all impact North Toronto because we have small lots, but in Etobicoke, Scarborough, North York, like that, and it's it's a position that has just been made without any kind of community input. And that is a dangerous, dangerous thing because people aren't really paying attention to how this is going to impact them. But when it does, it is really going to impact them. And Tory is going to feel the full brunt of a population and residents that feel like they've been completely sidelined by someone they trusted. And that's a very dangerous place to be. Uh, yeah, but I guess uh, he's probably not interested in a fourth term. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, let's talk. His legacy, his legacy will be this. That he basically crushed, he crushed communities in favor of what, to get what. Like, that will be his legacy, and I don't think that's what he wants either. No, I, I wouldn't think so. Uh, and it, interesting, you mentioned prefabs. I wonder how much do those prefabs cost? Because th- those houses that are going to be knocked down in Etobicoke, they are worth a lot of money. Yeah. In my experience, I'm terrified to buy prefab anything after seeing so many condo developments in prefab that I have friends who bought units in and that were canceled or took five years longer than expected. So I have no idea how much the homes will cost. But like you said, the properties that are on them are quite valuable. Yeah. Uh, What about the impact uh, on the conservation piece? So with the Greenbelt, first, Ford promised not to touch it. Then he said, well, he's swapping some of it out. Uh, So he's putting back more than he's taking away, but they're different parcels. Uh, Some people are saying, well, the parcels that he is ungreening are, you know, close to highways or whatever, and probably you may not want to live there. Um, So there's that. And also a story in the Toronto Star that a couple of developers bought land that couldn't be developed, and suddenly uh, they're going to have a windfall. David? Oh, absolutely. Those, uh, those who've, uh, people who had land there for a while ago, but even more so, there are a number of bought land within the last couple of years, and I have no doubt that they were paying attention to the Premier's comments earlier that he was going to take large chunks of the green, of the green belt out for development. He's now, of course, living up to his own word. They're going to make a lot of money. Uh, rough, rough, roughly, as soon as the legislation goes through and shortly after, as the market absorbs that, um, they will have made, without building a stick, somewhere about 10 times the amount of the original investment. This is, this is an egregious uh, 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 piece of work that's happening right now, uh, that, that we, are, we are living in a world where the provincial government is listening far more than, far, far more than they ought to, uh, to uh, land speculators and those developers who speculate in land because they're they're not they're not they're not making a profit on good work being done. They're simply making a profit on political influence uh, and investment when they know that there's going to be the government acting on their behalf. Uh, and in in terms of the conservation area, so the the province has asked for a list of these areas, and uh, what does that uh, what does that Suggest, Karen. Well, what it, what it oh, go ahead, David. No, go ahead, David. Go ahead, David. Go ahead, David. Okay, uh, uh, it's, it's important to, to remember that the conservation authority uh, is, by this legislation, being even further hollowed out than than it had been uh, uh, two years ago with the legislation that they brought in. The, the conservation authority, but with it for seventy five years, with a mandate to look after environmental planning and watershed planning, they are now being knocked out of that. And so it is, again, one of the great harms being done by the current government uh, and for those who will not speak out against it, uh, that the Conservation Authority, which came in, 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 into our midst in 1946 with the Planning Act, um, is now being hollowed out by this government because what it, what it does do is constrain development in places that are environmentally sensitive. Hmm. Karen? Yeah, I agree with David. You know, the reason that we had... The, the green belt is is for you know many reasons. One is to constrain uh, development, to keep it compact, to reduce urban sprawl, but also for you know for legitimate watershed and environmental issues. And so it's not like a Lego board where you can just swap it in and out. You know that it, it was designed for a reason to be effective for a reason. And 
like David said, you know, it's not like the developers bought this land on the cheap and they're going to build housing that's affordable. They're not. They just made their windfall and they're going to walk away and sell it at a profit and it's going to be expensive housing in a beautifully protected green area. And so it's just, it's quite frankly egregious and unfortunate because there are so many possibilities and opportunities for this government to be doing good work on behalf of this province. And these are examples that are not convincing anyone that they're actually quite representing quite public interest. So, I'm sorry, I'm quite quick to say, so it's not just this particular uh, chunks of land that they're taking out right now. They are now setting the stage for more speculation because of the, the, the land speculation people and the developers who are interested in that kind of speculation, they are now looking and seeing what's happening. And so are the people who own that land. The green belt kept everybody in check. They're now, they're now going to tell everybody that the green belt is no longer worth depending on. And so therefore you're going to find more speculation, mm-hmm. more land being brought by land developers and speculators. And you're going to see the, con- the continuing unwinding of the green belt. Uh, there's something else. My understanding is that uh, there was a process underway for a whole new uh, master plan for Toronto. Does anybody know what happens to that? I I, I, I don't know. I, I, I wish I knew the answer. Yeah, I, I, I don't know what will happen to that. Okay, well, that's something to to yeah, check into. So we've got this basically uh, what you guys are saying this this assault on municipal prerogative. Uh, interesting, Bonnie Crombie was also happy with it, and she said she hopes it's a first step to allowing Mississauga to separate from the region of Peel. Yeah, I think that's her motivation, though. I think uh, I don't. I didn't hear her speak on other aspects of the bill, but I think she's been she's obviously been a longtime supporter of separating uh, Mississauga away from Peel, uh, and uh, she thinks this is a, a, a vehicle by which she can do that. I think all the other matters that we've been talking about, uh, Bonnie Crombie would probably find agreement with us. Okay, well, and and uh, do you agree that she should be able to separate from Peel? I, I have not spent a lot of time with the issue, but Mississauga is a very big place, uh, and, and it seems to be that they should probably be on their own, the same as any other municipality. Uh, and what about the this changes to regional government? I mean, the argument for these changes is that people say it's a lot of red tape, so if you're in Mississauga and you need something approved first, you have to get Mississauga City Council to approve it, and then you have to go to Peel Region. So is this, uh, first of all, giving Steve Clark the ability to appoint regional chairs and then reviewing the whole thing? Is that a good idea? Bad idea? It's well, a- I, think, I think the appointments are, for an interim basis, it's a, it's a bad idea, in my judgment, that they would appoint, appoint the chairs of regions. I mean, that, that again, simply, we're, we're, we're turning the whole thing into uh, an exercise by which the province, is, the province takes over all of the local government uh, functions and keeps the local government there as a way in which they protect themselves but are actually pulling the strings. Yeah, I, I agree. It, it's a lot of just the provincial government coming in and trying to take control over the municipalities and what they can do there. Um, I don't know if you all saw this yesterday at Queen's Park, but John Sewell, one of the co-authors of the excellent piece that David wrote in the Toronto yes, Star. Yes, excellent piece, by the way. Yes, so good. Loved it. Um, he was escorted out of Queen's Park yesterday by police. Like, because well, he can he get had rowdy dis- sometimes. <laughs> but I mean, <laughs> the argument was that like he had a dissenting opinion. He wasn't allowed to speak, and so he interrupted someone to like give his piece on why this bill shouldn't go through and I mean, not to be sensationalist, but it just never looks good to see the removal of, like, someone with a dissenting opinion by force. Like, it's always just like, ugh. And I know perhaps maybe he was disruptive. I didn't see the actual clip, but that kind of story is going around and people are like, ooh, that's not a great look. And and I just want to give you this. David Miller, another former mayor of Toronto, yes. tweeted this um, yesterday. When the Supreme Court of Canada said that Ford's conservatives could have the wards in Toronto's in the middle of an election, despite having no mandate, no public hearings, no discussion, nothing except the argument i have the legal power it invited all of this so i think that speaks to like the kind of precedent that it set it well you know harking back to the very beginning of doug ford's 
term. People were saying he's more interested in the city than the province and he wants revenge. Is that an overstatement, Karen? I don't know if he wants revenge, but, you know, certainly I believe that Doug Ford, when he was a councillor and his brother was mayor, felt stymied by a city council that they had complete disdain for. I think that's pretty fair. And so, you know, I think Doug is now in a position or Premier Ford is now in a position where if he was going to remake council to a place where he would have preferred to work, you know, that could be part of what's the input here. And, you know, he's justifying it by saying we need housing and he's justifying it by saying we need transit um, because, to be candid, he didn't get his way a lot of the time with housing and with transit. But, you know, because I was part of that discussion, I would say he, he shouldn't have gotten yet. And so council did its best work when we were under pressure and we had to find solutions for, uh, uh, you know, a mayor that wasn't completely... Um, in a position to make the decisions that were in the best interest of the city. And so even though there is a view that councils are dysfunctional, they absolutely are not. Uh, yes, it's messy because we debate in public and there is no um, in-confident discussions you can have unless they relate to certain issues. But the reality is councils work that way and they build consensus. And when you build consensus, then you have a lasting decision. When you, when you make a decision that you just have the power to make because you can you find that you end up alienating a great deal, great swaths of your constituency, and you don't get buy-in, and that leads to a host of other issues down the road. I'm going to take a call uh, from uh, Daryl. I'm not sure I understand the question as I read it, Daryl, but go ahead. I was just wondering, so if people were part of the green building and couldn't be developed, and then so they sold it off, and then six months later, a year later, Premier comes along and says, now it's open for development. Do they not have any recourse to, let's say, sue the government for lost money? I mean, in the world of business, it does not seem to be the case that if someone missed out on selling it for a lot of money themselves, that they would... Bad timing on real estate happens all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but uh, yeah. Um, So uh, we have... uh, This is... And the thing about it is that it's also is so complicated that I I think it's kind of you know going above or you know I think I don't think a lot of people are paying attention just because uh, it's not sexy and they're more worried about uh, a QP strike mm. which is going to be coming up very shortly. Uh, what kind of response have you been getting? on this, Lauren? You know, like you said, it's not the sexiest topic. And, and we're not seeing a huge amount of our audience engaged in this, which is why we don't cover it as heavily as some other things. Um, sadly, people are more interested in things like Drake getting or getting sued by Vogue or whatever in, um, in some demographics. But um, I do think that there's a lot more attention on the QP strike for sure. That, and that is just one situation. And you know, there was the whole repealing of the legislation that would have got made them illegal to strike. That was a whole thing. But that's going to pass and, and like come and go in history. Whereas this, what's going on right now at Queen's Park with this housing bill, that has really long lasting implications. So I definitely think people should, you know, pay attention to it more. It's just a matter of kind of getting them to see the impact that it will have on their everyday lives and their futures. David, do you have any suggestions for mobilizing people for, on, on the on the strike? You mean no uh, on on all these municipal changes? Oh yes, I, I'm sorry, misunderstood. Uh, <clears throat> well, I, I think you'll find beginning first of all, it's already happening around the province. I keep in touch with a, a number of organizations. There's, a, I think, there's a, a growing interest and a growing concern. Uh, about the legislation, and you're going to find a lot of local and regional and provincial organizations f- uh, from agriculture, uh, from uh, from uh, great pairs groups, and so on. I think you're going to find more and more people paying attention. So I do not think that, that it's going to go away quietly. Um, and if they think it is, they're going to be quite surprised because next week I think there's going to be a major document put out and a number of people who are going to be behind it, and there's going to be a lot of work being done over the next weeks and months uh, to make sure that the government recants what it's doing. 
Uh, yeah, good luck with that. Uh, I'm looking at the clock. It's time to go around and get um, some final thoughts on what you're going to be looking at for the coming week, uh, starting with Lauren. Oh, I, oh, I'm on the spot here. Uh, everything, all the time. We have a really big snowstorm coming into the region. Um, it's coming in like Friday to Sunday. It's going to hit the Niagara region really bad. They're saying it could be up to 50 centimeters of snow. So that's what I'm looking at right now, seeing all the fallout from the storm. Our audience is obsessed with snow right now and storms. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, do not travel. Look up Environment Canada's warning, uh, snow skull warning squall warnings because they're saying that travel could be extremely dangerous i quote extremely dangerous uh and uh what can i say at least we're not in buffalo yeah <laughs> true karen yeah i think that you know it's just shifting to the strike i know we didn't talk a lot about it but you know i i think we're going to be in a position where everyone's got to hunker down for a long labor action because the government um is clearly positioned in, in their offer and the union is clearly positioned in their um demands. And so given that we've decided collectively that unions have a right to strike and that the public sector union has a right to strike in particular, we have to settle down for what could be a very long dispute. Hmm. And David? Yeah, I think that, that, that probably the, the current issue uh, uh, that, that, uh, that between the government and the education authorities, I think there probably will be a solution by uh, over the next couple of days. But I think uh, Karen's right. There's going to be a lot of of labor action over the next months and years, so uh, mm-hmm. uh, we should be we, we should be ready for that because it's a it's a, a very a quickly changing world. But the current strike deals with kids, and so consequently, I think we probably both sides have taken about as far as they can go. And if they're wise, they'll both find a way in which they come together in a day or two. Okay, well, uh, you know, you guys have given me the perfect setup because after the break, in the next segment, I will be talking to Fred Hahn of QP about what is going on there. And I guess on that note, the thing that sort of uh, is really surprising me is that it's it's already escalated to a level of acrimony, you know, uh, just a few days after uh, we thought we had some kind of detente. But in the meantime, thank you so much to our... Tune into the town panel, Karen Stintz, David Crombie, and Lauren O'Neill. Thank you. Thanks, Liz. Thanks, Thanks, everybody. Okay, talk soon. Bye. Oh, we are going to take a break, as I said, and we'll be right back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. On Monday, the government repealed the controversial legislation taking away education workers' right to strike. And on Wednesday, the union issued a new strike deadline, and that deadline is next Monday. Now, apparently both sides reached a middle ground on wages, but not on service levels, And clearly, there's no easing of the acrimony around this dispute. Uh, Let me give the numbers to call people if you have questions or comments. I know that a lot of people are uh, on tenterhooks about this. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Fred Hahn, the president of CUPE. Hi, Fred. Thanks for joining us. Good afternoon. How are you today? I'm fine. Now, uh, why did you issue a strike notice? From the beginning of this round of negotiations, more than, uh, well, for months now, uh, we've been trying to do a couple of very important things that are connected. One, make sure that that workers had wages that tried to keep pace with inflation, but also make sure that the supports are there in schools for students to give them the, the supports they need to succeed. The government cut uh, $900 million, almost a billion dollars, out of education funding. And what that did in translating it to schools meant that there were a number of positions that schools either laid off or didn't post. Those are jobs like early childhood educators uh, who work in, uh, in kindergarten classes, education assistants who work with kids with special needs, custodial maintenance staff who keeps schools clean and safe, admin staff who keeps schools running. This has been a part of the proposals that our members have put forward to government since the beginning. Uh, 
Uh, and this is now uh, a real focus for us to try to make sure that money is reinvested in our schools. Hmm. Uh, what I'm really sort of curious about is I get that uh, you've made, it sounds like, some progress, but uh, there's a ways to go. It seems to me that there's a, a certain level of acrimony here that was not alleviated by the government repealing that legislation. Well, it's difficult. You know, um, our members are still smarting. Uh, from having a collective agreement ordered by the province. Uh, it fundamentally, that action fundamentally misunderstood uh, what's happening on the ground in our schools, but also fundamentally misunderstood what our members are willing to do to defend themselves and defend the services they deliver. It is true that the government did repeal that bill. It took them a week to do so. Um, and, it, you know, what we're trying to do now, we are trying to put that behind us and move forward. The best way to move forward is that we use every tool possible to us to ensure that government replaces the funding that it removed from school board budgets so that the supports that are needed are there. You know, we've got kids with special needs who are required to have one-on-one support from an EA who don't have it today because there simply aren't enough EAs available. Well, this is we have- this is leads me to the next question. There are labor shortages in every single sector, particularly those around healthcare. Uh, if if tomorrow the government said yes, we'll give you all the service you uh, want, are, would you be able to find those workers? We we believe that they would be able to find them because a number of the boards have uh, part-time or casual staff and they have uh, relief staff to call in for when people are ill, for when people are sick. Many of these folks would dearly like to have more hours, would 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 want to be full-time employees. Uh, and those supports are really needed in our schools, not just for kids with special needs. You know, we've got a full-day kindergarten program now always set up to have at least two adults in the room, a teacher and an early childhood educator. Today, far too many classes have only one adult, a teacher, and with sometimes 25 little ones, it's impossible to you know, implement the curriculum that was planned in that circumstance. Giant school buildings that used to have three and four people to clean them that are now down to one person at a time when, you know, we've got cold and flu season raging and we need to make sure our schools are clean and safe. These are why these jobs are so important and it's why there is such a strong focus here. Uh, on ensuring that the government replaces funding. Is is there anything in this? I mean, uh, the legislation that was just repealed took away your right to strike using the notwithstanding clause. Is is there anything in this that you want to show the government that this is your right and you are uh, ready to use it? Is this kind of... No, not at all. I mean, this is, in fact, a normal course of bargaining. That whole crisis that we were all plunged in a couple of weeks ago uh, was never anything that we anticipated. And, and what we're doing now is not in response to it. The proposals we have are the same kinds of proposals that we have, that we put out publicly uh, from the very beginning of this that have been available to not just all of our members, but to parents and families and anyone who wanted to see them, including the minister himself. To have the Minister of Education say he's never heard about a request for services is really befuddling when it's been quite clearly part of the bargaining the entire time. And there are resources available there in order to do this. This is about the choices government make. This is about ensuring that the downward slide we're seeing in our schools can be stopped and that there can be the proper supports for students. Just before I had my municipal panel on and uh, former Toronto mayor David Crombie said he predicted that there would be a deal before the strike deadline. (laughs) What do you think of his prediction? I certainly hope he's right. It's the very last thing that any worker, but certainly these workers, want to do. They'd rather stay at their jobs in schools. Uh, making sure that those schools are running well, are clean and safe, that kids are supported. That is much more what people would like to do. This is about how do we get to that final push where the minister actually puts money in, uh, you know, guarantees that there will be resources added to school board budgets that can be dedicated to this important work. Anything else you want to leave us with, Fred? Only, you know, I, I, I will say 
that there has been, you know, lots of worry. People talk about parents being worried, and I want to reassure everyone that our members are also parents. Uh, they uh, are also concerned about the state of the of their own kids' education. And, you know, we have time now, and we really do need to keep up that sort of pressure, and we need the help and support of others to do that, to encourage uh, the Minister of Education, the Premier, uh, to get us across the finish line, as they say, to, to finish this last piece and make sure that resources are there for the services that kids need to succeed. Fred Hahn, QP President, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, people, I'm going to try to take a few of the calls that are getting quite backed up. Let us go to Jody in Toronto. Hello, Jody. Hello? I I don't know where she is, but she's not on uh, the line. Ron in Guelph. Hi, Ron. Hi, Libby. Thanks for taking my call. Um, you know, this is, I, I, there's a whole bunch of words I can use, individual words. Um, one would be, I think the union has moved the goal line on this thing. Um, Fred just said one of the tools to do a negotiation. Well, um, there's the government blinked. Everybody knows the government blinked on this thing. And now, to me, the union is um, what I call either a ransom or blackmail or whatever you want to call it. Because um, they're saying, well, Stephen Lecter knew about all these things. So wait a minute. I'm in the media. I watch. I read. All the media, all the uh, union stuff that they put out there, I don't ever remember hearing anything about, well, we need more workers. We need this. We need that. It was it was all about the wages, wasn't it? Okay, Ron. Thanks for that. Uh, let's go to Carolyn and Halliburton. Thanks, Libby. Um, I guess my, my first thought is enough is enough. Uh, they should not be allowed to go on strike. That, having said that, I totally support what they are asking for. They do need more staff. They do need more programs that are properly funded, and the government needs to money back into the programs. But having said that, the I totally blame the unions for this. They came into the whole discussion with a hammer saying, you give us what we want or we're going on strike. And it was not even a reasonable amount of time to do any negotiations. So they left the government no uh, no option but to come back with a hammer of their own. And in doing so, the issue stopped being about what the children needed, which is really the ultimate point in all of this. It started being about their right to strike and their their rights in general. And because of that, this has dragged on the way it has, and we are where we are now. I really think they should go to the mandatory arbitration, which I believe, um, and my understanding may not be totally correct, but I understand that that will then bring a conclusion that maybe neither side is happy with, but that they can live with in the meantime. And Always really a, a higher believe- settlement. Uh, Carolyn, thanks very much for your call. Thank you. Okay, I'm looking at the clock. I've got to move along. People want to talk about this, but hey, Free For All Friday is coming up tomorrow, and you can call back and talk about uh, this, and uh, who knows, there may be other developments between now and then, but this is totally going to be one of our big topics tomorrow. Right now, I'm taking another break. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about what happened between the Chinese Premier and Justin Trudeau when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It was an unusual public display of anger from Chinese President Xi Jinping. He scolded Prime Minister Justin Trudeau during the G20 summit in Indonesia yesterday, expressing unhappiness over the fact that their earlier conversation was, quote, leaked to the press by Trudeau's office. It was caught on camera, including Trudeau's response that his government is committed to transparency. Uh, as an in-brackets aside, I have to say that commitment perhaps is a little selective. Well, this comes 
just after the foreign minister, Melanie Jolie, announced a new approach to China. And of course, in the past, Trudeau has been accused of being too pro-China. So numbers, what do you think? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And I guess the question is, is this good for Trudeau? Is it bad for Trudeau? And what about the rest of us? Let us bring in Dr. Stephen Sademan, the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University. Hi, Dr. Sademan. Hi, Libby. How are you doing? Fine. So, uh, is this good for Trudeau, bad for Trudeau? I think it's mostly good for Trudeau. I mean, Trudeau has had a hard time establishing himself as being a a little more uh, hawkish is probably the wrong word, but uh, a little little less uh, supportive of China or, or, or happy relations with China, and people have been pushing him to be more hawkish, and, and this allows him to say that he pushed back. Hmm. And what do you think about it on Xi Jinping's end? I mean, some people are interpreting that, that he has no respect for Trudeau or Canada because uh, he wouldn't have done this with anyone else? Oh, please. He would have done this with a lot of other countries. Uh, I, the, his relationship with a lot of countries right now is, is in, in difficult position because China over the past years has moved from trying to rise peacefully and calmly and not threateningly to threatening a lot of countries. It's not just Canada. China, you know, this happens to be Canada's turn, but uh, they've taken uh, people from other countries, including the United States, and held them prisoner. Um, they've been brusque at various international uh, meetings with other countries. Uh, so uh, I, I don't think Canada is that special right now. I do think that picking on Canada sends a signal to the rest of the world. That if you're gonna if you're gonna be aggressive towards Canada, then they're gonna be aggressive towards everybody else. But I don't think that that uh, Canada is, is is sort of a a weak target that they're picking on because they they can't they can't get away with it when someplace else. Uh, so uh, China's uh, I I don't know if performance is the right word at the summit. Uh, what do you make of that? I mean, it's it's hard to I'm I'm having a hard time deciphering. Uh, where Joe Biden was on all of this. Uh, is he tougher or conciliatory? Sometimes it's really hard to tell. Well, that's the thing about diplomacy is you can't just pick one flavor and stick with it all the time. You've got to figure out different ways, depending on what the issues are. Uh, you know, the United States and Canada are looking for China to cooperate on a whole host of issues and trying to compartmentalize those areas where there's conflict. So, yes, we disagree over Taiwan, but can we agree over climate change? Can we agree over over not shipping arms to Russia? Can we agree on other issues that that are important to us? Um, this Cold War, if we want to call it that, is different from the old Cold War because we're much more interdependent with China than the U.S. and Canada were with the Soviet Union. And so it can't be just black and white. We're not going to cooperate with them. We're going to avoid them. And even then, during the Cold War, there are all kinds of places the United States and the Soviet Union cooperated. Today, there's all kinds of issues that are transnational and that we have to find ways to work with them. So when we're dealing with those issues, then we sound more cooperative. When we're dealing with their abuse of of the Uyghurs and other people in their country or their interference in the Canadian elections, then we are more confrontational. And because that is the story right now of the week is of – Chinese interference in Canadian elections, Trudeau is taking a more um, assertive stance, and the Chinese don't like it. So this is actually a sign that the message is getting through. Well, speaking of that interference in Canadian elections, yeah, yeah, he's taking a tougher stance, but he doesn't seem particularly anxious for us to find out who is involved here. Well, I think I think there's that's a process that that. So, you know, we're going through to figure out what's going on here. I don't think it's up to the prime minister to identify who the, the individuals are who are part of this process of interfering in the Canadian election. Uh, since it's now Which politicians more the, were on the receiving end? You know, I think that that's obviously a political problem for, for uh, Trudeau that they, the Chinese seem to have wanted liberals to win at the expense of the conservatives in the last election. And so that says something about what the, the Chinese wanted. But I, I, I think by doing so, they've actually done this kind of the same thing 
that the Russians did in 2016, which is they've antagonized uh, a large part of the political atmosphere or environment. And so the liberals are, are can't be friendly to the Chinese anymore because you know if the Chinese pick them to win, it makes it much harder for the for the trio government then to to give them what they want because it makes them look weak and looks so it makes them look compliant. So I think. The fact that they got caught in election interference is going to make it hard for them to achieve their the Chinese to achieve their goals. And where do you think this whole thing is going? Is it just going to die down, or are we going to get some uh, explosive revelations? I don't really know what the revelations. Nah, I don't know what revelations are to be had, so I can't tell you what may appear. But you know, the media is episodic; they'll cover these things when there's something flashy, and then it'll go away. Uh, so they're covering it right now because of this meeting, and we'll see if their investigation finds particular individuals to be responsible, and if they do, then uh, we'll see it in the media, uh, and if they don't, then we won't. Uh, you mentioned Taiwan off the top, and a lot of people are really worried about it, and there are a lot of pundits who say it's not a matter of if China will invade, but when. I think it's still an if thing. I mean, it's if, meaning that, you know, there's not 100% certainty, but certainly the Chinese are planning uh, on doing something serious with Taiwan in the future. People keep on talking about 2027 or something happening sooner. Uh, They're definitely making all the moves to make it happen. It's certainly one of their objectives, but international relations is dynamic. And so if they find that uh, there's enough resistance if they happen to learn lessons from the Ukraine war, which is that maybe an invasion uh, in this uh, env- technological environment might be incredibly costly, it may not work out, then they may decide again. So, And it also depends on the domestic politics within China, that, that if Z gets replaced by someone who's a bit less of a nationalist, if he gets replaced by somebody who's a bit more of a nationalist, these things are dynamic. There's no 100% certainty that anything is going to happen. What do you mean but getting replaced? He's uh, president for life now. Yeah, well, authoritarian politics is also a dynamic. There's no guarantee that he won't do something to offend those who support him. Any authoritarian leader relies on some group of supporters. We see in Russia right now that Putin has alienated some of his supporters, and that's made him more dependent on the hawkish people. But it doesn't have to work out that way. It could be that Z ends up alienating, you know, becoming more dependent on the people who are more uh, interested in having calm international relations. And it may be that he gets replaced. It, authoritarian regimes are not lifetime guarantees that some guy is going to stay there forever and, or their life might be ended abruptly. So there's no guarantee that he's going to be around for 30 years. There's no guarantee that Putin's going to be around for 30 years. Um, countries can stay authoritarian and replace the guy on the top of the horse. Uh, what about China vis-a-vis Russia? Are they a possible intermediary to bring an end to this. Uh, They've uh, seemed, I don't know, um, less supportive than you would have expected of Russia. The Chinese are in a difficult position because the the war is good for them and that allows them to get uh, more leverage over Russia. Russia has become much more dependent on China for a whole host of things. On the other hand, food prices and energy prices are things that they have to pay for, too. And so this has been bad for the Chinese economy, just like it's bad for the world economy. So they're not pleased by this. They were hoping that's going to be a short and sweet kind of thing uh, that wouldn't affect them very much. And now that this drags on, I'm sure they want an end to it. But uh, I'm not sure they can be an intermediary because that would require the Ukrainians to agree to that. And I'm not sure the Ukrainians would trust the Chinese. Hmm. So uh, where does this leave us? Uh, in terms of our relations with China? It's where they've been ever since they took the two Michaels. They've been, you know, they, they, they thought that that, wasn't a, that shouldn't have been a big deal in the relationship. They, they, they've exerted all kinds of leverage, hope, expecting us for us not to react. Uh, instead, Canada is now looking for other places to get its stuff. It's now looking to become a major producer of uh, rare earth metals. So I don't think the relationship's going to get any better anytime too soon. I don't think it's going to get much worse, but it's not going to get better. And what about the Chinese economy? I mean, this is we're not the only country doing this, and their economy is not doing well, and uh, their uh, total lockdown policy hasn't been helping things. No, the Chinese economy, which was always going to face some time where it was not going to be growing a lot every year, is now hitting a big bump on the road between COVID and uh, the oil prices, the, the the food prices, and everything else that's going on, 
And that's really problematic for the regime because that's their promise. Their promise to, to their people is full employment and, a, and a, an ever-growing economy. So uh, the, the Chinese are going to have to figure out their own domestic uh, situation. And that might mean that they get more aggressive towards Taiwan as a distraction, or it might mean they reinvest more stuff into their civilian side of the economy rather than the military side of the economy. Uh, can that mean any moderation in the way they deal with the West? Because we are, after all, uh, their best customers. This is the thing, is what are they going to learn from the past few years as as people start to deglobalize and start to try to have domestic production or find alternatives? Are they going to learn the lesson that they should reduce the tension so that way they continue to have these markets? Or they double down? And that's the thing, is it's hard to, from outside to figure out how an authoritarian regime is going to learn uh, the Chinese government has been pretty uh, smart all along the way, but the past several years they've they've cost themselves a fair bit with their aggression that hasn't really gotten them that much internationally. So it really depends on whether they can learn or not, and it's hard to see that uh, that's going to happen anytime too soon. Okay, Dr. Stephen Sadman, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, my pleasure. Bye bye. Bye bye. Okay, uh, Free For All Friday is coming up tomorrow, people, and I had to leave a whole bunch of calls on the new strike deadline of QP, so that's definitely going to be a topic. Also, uh, there are a lot of people who want the government to go further in terms of uh, mask mandates versus recommendations, so you can call and let me know what you think about that as well, and of course, anything else. That will be on your mind because Free For All Friday is your day to talk about what you want to talk about. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air and The Garden Show.